welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Senior Housing News Editor Tim Regan. On today's episode, I spoke with Marvell Adams Jr., who left his role as COO at Kendall Corporation earlier this year to found W. Lawson, a company focused on inclusion and belonging in the senior living industry. Adam sees a real need for operators to prioritize equity, inclusion, and belonging for both workers and residents, but he also thinks the clock is ticking. My perspective is, is that strategy for our future in our field is an inclusion strategy if you're going to survive. Operators that don't make space for being more inclusive are going to get caught flat-footed sooner than they think. And now here's my interview with Marvell Adams Jr., founder and CEO of W. Lawson. Marvell Adams Jr., thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So we have a lot to talk about. Just start with kind of the obvious. You were the COO of Kendall Corporation. You left your role earlier this year. You founded a company called W. Lawson, which is an exciting company. I want to talk more about it. I will actually, though, before we do that, I want to talk about why you left. So why did you leave Kendall and kind of what inspired you to take on this calling of tackling you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, thank you for the question, Tim. You know, this this change earlier this year, it, it's been kind of a chapter in my career, uh, almost a couple decades in the making. You know, I've served two really respected organizations, one being the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York, uh, and the other being Kendall. And part of found my founding of W. Lawson, uh, I realized for the work I wanted to do for this next chapter that really focused on developing communities of inclusion and belonging, that I would need to start from scratch, that that it really was a bottom-up kind of approach. Uh, and so that's what I did. For my perspective, there are a ton of great things that our uh, providers out there bring to the field, bring to older adults. But I also recognize that within that is a bit of the status quo. And that's just not what you know I was reaching for any longer, and uh, and so part of that change really is how can I uh, make this next chapter of my career truly focused on inclusion and belonging? And I realized that the best way for me to do that is is to start my own company. Yeah, I know that sometimes when we talk about this topic, I can see sometimes people don't quite know where to start. There's a lot in that big umbrella. You know, accordingly, W. Lawson has a big umbrella. I know you've got some ambitions to do a lot of different things. So tell me a bit more about the organization, W. Lawson, and kind of what you hope to achieve with it, what the big idea is. Yeah. So our mission is create community, do good, uh, which uh, is simple by its very nature because that's our aim. The objective is not just to create housing and community, but instead to look at where we are in our demographics as a country for older adults and the changing fabric of our uh, country. And so part of that really comes down to how do we create community that is inclusive, meaning across age lines, across socioeconomic lines, uh, across race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. How do we do that in an industry that is mostly serving you know, older white uh, adults? And so from our perspective, uh, the company itself is focused on a couple different areas. One is around how do we bring to scale housing supports and services to older adults that one improves the equity that takes place in that in that space as well as begins to really bring to the forefront the fact that 
we have a ballooning population of older adult homelessness as well. So this just isn't about, you know, senior living. This isn't just about middle market or low and affordable. If you're talking about across the spectrum, there are challenges uh, to all seniors because even if you can afford some of the higher end affluent products, it does not mean that you're going to bed safe at night feeling as if if you fall on the floor, someone's going to be there in a second to help you. Like that sense of security is still something I think many older adults are looking for. So from our perspective, objective number one is how do we bring to scale housing, sports and services for older adults that removes the barriers from a socioeconomic standpoint, as well as from an ageism eradication standpoint, how do we do that in an intergenerational way? So part of that is coming from community building and actual bricks and mortar, but the majority of our work is going to be right where people are. And we're listening to the fact that most individuals are saying over and over again, I don't want to leave my home. Now, you could challenge and say, if we created communities that were more like a community and less like a siloed behind closed uh, gates type of community, that people may want to move. But you know, from our perspective, we believe that our strongest case is to say to folks, we want to serve and we want to serve in a way that is led by your ambitions and your wants and your interests. And we think that it's one that not only speaks to the boomers, but speaks to Gen X, which are the adult children that are even more so interested in this conversation because one of their parents and two, because they're kind of stuck in the middle caring for older adults as well as perhaps young age kids. The other part of the bulk of business for us is it's consultation, but it's very I shouldn't say very specific. It's it's focused on how can we as an organization help other providers create inclusion strategy. You know, and we'll talk, I can talk about it a little bit more later, but the the demographics are changing so rapidly in our country that, you know, not many providers have have awakened to the fact that the folks that we usually target, the type of individuals that populate our communities, the demographics in our country are changing so swiftly that our market will start to degrade even more so than it has in the last decade or so. So the other part of our work is really working with organizations, uh, boards and C-suite executives around how do you develop an inclusion strategy for your residents, for those that serve them, and I think most importantly, for your governance infrastructure, which is really where the tone has to be set uh, when it comes to the culture of an organization being inclusive. Yeah. There's there's a lot in there. I want to maybe hone this to a point a little bit. Are you working with some other organizations or tell me more about some of the, the more recent projects or what we can look forward to in 2023 out of W. Lawson? Yeah, so that's really exciting. Um, so some of our early partnerships are with a children's home uh, in Catonsville, Maryland, uh, an actual foster home that was started by um, Germans. Uh, gosh, hundred and something years ago. People don't know that Baltimore is actually a historically uh, German town. So the Children's Home was really looking for a partnership on how to develop intergenerationally, and they had land and have land that is expressly for the purpose of residential living. But expanding a foster home is not something that happens, you know, nowadays anymore. So I, um, my business partner connected us with a woman by the name of Jane Rhoda, and she's the principal at JSR Associates. And she created uh, a trademarked intergenerational design approach called Live Together. So when Jane and I started talking, I realized like this is exactly what we want to do. I mean, this is it. 
uh, to a T. And this had been a passion project of hers for many years to bring intergenerational older adult living onto this foster home campus uh, and do it in a way that not only enriches the lives of the older adults there, but enriches the lives of the foster kids that are there through no fault of their own. They're not there because they did something. It's because their family situation, their home situation was no longer uh, conducive to them being uh, able to stay there. But in addition to that, um, we connected several months ago with the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, As you may have uh, heard me speak before, I I find Bayard Rustin to be an inspiration as a civil rights leader. And the center that was named in his honor in New Jersey, they focus on LGBTQ youth and and supporting them. So the other added programmatic uh, synergy that we're really excited about is you know, unfortunately, LGBTQ youth are at higher risk for homelessness and entering the foster care system than, than other youth and from a, a proportional standpoint. And what the Children's Home of Catonsville was really interested in is we really need help because we don't know how to appropriately and best support youth that are in our community that are part of the LGBT community. So you add to that, in addition to um, those partnerships, my alma mater, where I went to get my graduate degree at Chapel Hill, I had a former intern reach out and uh, they're doing their master's thesis or what's called their capstone uh, project for their final year, their master's program. And they have joined to to make W. Lawson the centerpiece of that capstone work. So I have this really cool team of five, actually half of them, if not more, have uh, several years of work experience. So they're not just coming from academia, but that group of individuals also is coming alongside to bring us uh, that intergenerational diversity from an advisory standpoint, from a learning aspect, from their own particular interests, as well as bringing to the project an opportunity to build something from scratch in a way that we believe has not been done before, but these types of partners coming together in a way that is going to, in my opinion, create community and do good in a way that would have been elusive if we had tried to do it by ourselves. That's exciting. And that touches on a lot of things that I've, I've hear people in this industry talk about what, what this industry needs, more, more inclusion, more organic community and interaction. Mm-hmm. So that, that fits right along with that. I want to talk with you about kind of a difficult topic. This is kind of, this goes into the status quo that we had talked about a little bit ago. A little bit over a year ago at, I think it was the leading age annual meeting, someone was essentially pretty racist towards you. And I remember you wrote a blog post about it. And to me, I remember reading that. I was shocked when I read that. And I think there are a lot of people in the industry who didn't know that these things went on, you know? And so I think this would help kind of paint the picture for our audience of where the industry is today. So can you describe what happened there and, you know, use that to talk about kind of where the industry is today and where we all need to go with regard to thinking about things like inclusion, diversity, race, all of this? What I'd say, uh, Tim, is that I think the number one responsibility, job, task that providers have in front of them right now, particularly leaders in our field, is being open honest and candid about the current challenges uh, within diversity and inclusion within their organizations and frankly within themselves. You know, this this is not an imagined thing that we have an industry that um, has a great deal of its diversity concentrated at direct care staff, hourly staff that we hear over and over again aren't paid a wage that could even recruit them as well as a fast food restaurant could. But then having senior leadership, board governance, be mostly white and be mostly male. 
So from my perspective, that incident last year, you know, it was not the first time uh, feeling uh, that type of aggression or maybe uh, definitely not microaggression, but aggression um, within a conference setting. It's unfortunate that kind of stuff does happen. And it's not just because I'm a black guy. You know, uh, frankly, I'm sure women uh, uh, experience far more situations where they're put in uh, not only awkward situations, but one that can make them feel unsafe. So, you know, I offer that because I think that our, our field has a lot of introspective work to do, and I think that's why it's so com- uncomfortable. You know, what I would offer to those that might uh, be curious more about what took place is that I was purposeful about not calling out or saying who the person was, what the, the you know, identifying characteristics uh, might be. You know, at the end of it, I realized that uh, I'd perhaps had done it so well that no one even knew if it was, a, you know, what, what gender the person was. But what that left me with was recognizing it was exciting, I think, for folks in, in meaning in the, you know, not in the most positive of ways to hear about it. And it was a, a bit galvanizing, but then it also left folks with a lot of conflicting emotion, you know, about like, so what do we do now? And then I had that turn of like, so Marvel, what do you think we should do? What do we do? How do we do this? And, you know, I still go back to the same thing, which is that an individual that sees a historically marginalized or excluded person in a fashion that they think they could put their hands on them, well, that's a deeper issue than just talking about race in the workplace. That's a deeper issue than talking about diversity or the fact that your team might be hom- homogeneous. That really gets back to, it's, it's kind of like a, 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 all politics are, are local, that going back to and for providers to understand within their community that if you aren't recognizing for your staff, for your board, and for your for your residents that there are challenges for you around diversity, equity, and inclusion, then you really haven't started a journey yet. And so what I say for our field when I reflect back on those moments, that it really encapsulated the, I think, the approach that isn't working, which is to say, yes, we're, we, we have events that have diversity at the top of, in the name. We have inclusion you know, in, in, uh, in job descriptions, and we do all these different things. But at the end of the day, I can tell you from a person that has interviewed for, been consultated, and had a really insightful uh, look into C-suites and kind of the recruitment process, there aren't diverse committees doing recruitment either out there. Uh, I would even go as far as to say there is not much diversity amongst the recruitment firms that are out there. There are some exceptions. So when I talk about the field itself needing to become a more welcoming and inclusive place, what I'm really referring to is that it's not just a single person. Uh, so that's why that person, it didn't matter specifically them. It really is systemic. And so when you talk about eradicating systemic racism or ageism or or homophobia, all of it is really coming down to an organization deciding we're going to start to tackle these uncomfortable topics and we're going to come from a place of knowing we don't know the best next step and that's okay. What's not okay is refusing to figure it out or pretending that you've figured it out or giving window dressing or hiring a single person for a multi-million dollar organization to be in charge of diversity. It's a great first step, but it's it's a step backwards if there's not an inclusion strategy attached to that. And that's why I go back to some of the work that we've begun in W. Lawson, because my perspective is, is that 
strategy for our future in our field is an inclusion strategy if you're going to survive. I hope our audience took that to, to heart. If not, go back, rewind the podcast, listen to that <laughs> over again. This is very important stuff. You know, candidly, something that I will hear sometimes as I'm having kind of bantery conversations with operators is they'll say, look, Tim, we agree with you. We think that DEIB, we think it's really important. We believe in it, but our margins are not where we want them to be. Our occupancy is not where we want it to be. Our staffing is really hard. We have all these things that, you know, to, to talk about survival, we feel like we're still surviving. How can we possibly think about this while we're doing that? Obviously, I don't agree with that, but what would you say, you know, because I'm sure there are operators who have probably said this similar thing to you, what would you say to someone who says something like that? You know, Is there time to do both? I'm assuming there is. Yeah. So I would put it this way, that I don't think it, I think soon it won't be a choice. It, it, or at least it, will, it won't be a choice where you have great options to choose from. So I think operators that don't make space for the work being uh, more inclusive are going to get caught flat-footed sooner than they think. Just a, 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 a superficial, even cursory look at the demographic change in the census data showing us that you're going to go from in uh, currently to 50-something million older adults to 81 million older adults in, in less than 20 years, in about 18 years. So, you know, so uh, essentially the life of, of, you know, my kids growing up and going off to college, by the time they're in college, which feels it's getting closer and closer every day, we will have 30 million more older adults. And that's just counting 65 and older. And we know that the market really for older adults is younger than that. But when you look and peel apart those numbers, most of that growth, over half of it is coming from Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Then you look at individuals identifying as a member of LGBTQ, again, doubling in the number of individuals that are identifying as, even though we know that that's underreported. So in my opinion, for the providers that are right now saying we don't have time for this, you didn't have time for COVID, but you had to deal with it. You didn't have time for the Medicare rate exchange, but yet, like this is something you have to tackle. And you are feeling the effects undoubtedly already because that diversity that has held up and kept our organizations going for all these years is starting to question, well, where do I fit in here? You know, where do I fit in if I'm a Gen X or a Gen Z or a millennial? Where do I fit into this company culture? And they're starting to see if I don't fit in in the middle management, upper management, senior management or board, then I don't want to fit in anywhere else. And so, you know, my feeling is, is that looking at just I hate when people say the business case for diversity, because that that is that is the most backwards way of thinking about it. You had to really choose my words. I, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I try your thinking on that, too. I, I cringe similarly when I hear things like yeah. that. You know, and so it's like, okay, so that I understand that piece of it, but what we really are talking about here is is the those that we serve are target demographic, even if you're not targeted, the most of the people we serve, that that population amongst older adults will start to decline. So around 20, oh gosh, um, 2038, 2040. Right when really we see this kind of peak that happens amongst older adults, there's really only one group whose population starts to decline within that older adult uh, cohort, and it's older white men. And in fact, to give you a sense of just how much the diversity dynamics are changing, that in less than 20 years, 
uh, you will start to see a decline in about a million older white adults, white men, each year. That exact same number is an increase by one million of individuals that are older adults identifying as two or more races. I'm not even talking about just talking black. I'm, I'm talking about biracial individuals or multiracial individuals as being a one for one swap in the demographic census data showing projections in less than 20 years. So what I say to that is just look at the data. Look at the fact that if you are building a community and designing a community right now, the first repositioning you do for that community is going to depend upon way more historically excluded and marginalized individuals than this first opening will. And I don't care what part of the country you're in, because you could say, well, no, it's there's certainly pockets in it's silk, you know, and well, ask Georgia. Things change, you know, and I can't tell you if anybody could predict what's going to happen next year, uh, let alone 18 years from now, I would say that the the smart money would be on that the changes we're seeing, the majority uh, minority that we're seeing, is is not going away, and the the conversation has changed into a point of what are we as a field and as an industry going to do to speak to them, to reach out and provide services that are sensitive to understanding of and recognize. Hey, we as an industry have really fallen down. We have not done our homework for many, many years. And now it's really coming back to bite us um, eventually. And be honest about the fact that there's a hundred university-based retirement communities in this country, and there's zero affiliated with a historically black college and university. And when I talk about areas of focus for W. Lawson, that is one of our primary areas of focus, is that how do we not only partner with, hold up, and really bring to historically black college and universities and other organizations that serve black and brown and people of, of color, how do we do that in a way that recognizes the history that goes along with the being excluded while embracing the fact that equity desires, everyone deserves that access to equitable housing supports and services. And certainly older adults that um, have worked hard their entire lives deserve it just as anybody else, uh, regardless of their income. Yeah, I think it's it's no secret that the, and we've talked about this today, the first step to a more equitable senior living industry, at least in my mind, is you have to make this affordable to the a wide swath of people. This has to be a service that you know, when people need these services and want these services, they have to be your services that they can afford. I know that the middle market has been on your mind for quite a long time. What are some ways that you think the industry can reach that segment of the population in a real concrete way, you know, in the next 18 or so years? You know, I saw this article the New York Times put out probably a month or so ago, and it was talking about the the proven benefit of people of different socioeconomic and uh, income levels living uh, together in community. And that's part of our approach with creating community within W. Lawson, because the model really talks about how do you take a 55 plus, you know, active adult, independent living, um, zoning licensure, and create a 100% sliding scale where it's understood and embraced that if you are more affluent, then you pay a little more. And if you are less or you have little, that you pay an amount that that really not only recognizes that your money is not the only thing, the value to this community, yourself as a person, the value you bring as a lifelong gardener, as a crafts uh, person, as, as a builder, as a teacher, 
that you are bringing value that is well beyond the money that you have in your bank account. And so for me, the middle market, I don't think it's elusive at all. I think it's something that we have not given due justice to, to think through. I think we have thought about how do you take life plan community and make it light and make it work for folks? How do we take affordable housing and those very, very slim, almost zero margins, and then bump that up with maybe some folks that are willing to pay private pay? But it's missing the fact that there's a message in there, which is that for middle market to be built right now on a life plan community where you know, I think the ones that have been operating and around for a bit, they're going to have a few million cash that they could actually devote to something of, of social impact. What does it mean to do that? And from my perspective, I think that not only does our industry have to come to terms with the exclusion of lower incomes that we've had for many, many years, but recognize that the assets you have on your books, you have a, a duty to look and see how you can pr progressively expand your mission so that you can serve individuals with lesser means, knowing that the richness of your community is only made richer by diversity and inclusion, as opposed to thinking, let's be more of what we are. I want to talk with you about the future. I want to talk with you about some of the some of the things that we might be able to see out of W. Lawson here in the year ahead and beyond. I actually, though, before I do that, I want to flesh out a really interesting statistic that I had I had saw that you had cited in a slide deck that you had sent me about W. Lawson. Um, I was reading through it. There's an interesting statistic in there where it says something to the effect of there's this untapped group of never movers they're referred to, representing eighty to ninety percent of the overall market. So can you talk about what a never mover is? And I think this is what you were talking about earlier, maybe when it, when it comes to people saying, I never want to leave my home. Maybe that's what you're talking about. But can you mm -hmm. talk about what those people are and then also how you think the industry can better reach them? So I think most of the marketing companies out there, Love & Company, Ditton Hughes, you name it, would say, yeah, you know, for, for our sales cycle, you, you send out and, and target 100 individuals that are age and income qualified. Of those 100 individuals, 10 to 20 of them will actually show expressed interest in a particular community. And five to 10 of them will actually move in. And that number is getting smaller and smaller. It used to be 10. Now it's like eight, seven, six, you know, and it's not that occupancy problems are uh, woeful, but the cycle of sales has changed dramatically from what it was years ago. You know, so when I talk about the never movers, those 90% of those individuals that, that don't consider that life plan community or that senior housing development, most of them aren't going anywhere. They're going to stay at home. And in fact, they're admitting they're kicking and screaming, even, even considering moving to a community because they see it as settling as opposed to being served where they are. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean that our market needs to shift to completely providing everything at home, because I believe fully that both are complementary. I think we've saw, seen at-home models be a way to cannibalize our bricks and mortar, and it is quite the opposite. Our focus at W. Lawson is to say, we understand there's 81 million older adults that are going to blossom you know, in, the, in, the, in less than uh, two decades. If we just speak to the individuals that want to stay home and think inclusion and belonging is an important part of their experience, I think they'll be pretty busy. So, you know, from our perspective, it's a matter of how do we then recognize that if individuals that are older and wish to have a life that continues to thrive and, and provide energy to the momentum they've gained, you know, over their years of service, then 
we really got to recognize that they're telling us what they do and don't want. And are the things that are being developed and put on the market right now meeting that need? Um, it's meeting someone's need, but is it meeting the lion's share of those 81 min- million individuals? I would argue it's not. That's a great point. We have a little bit of time left here, Marvell. I want to I wanna just sort of get one, one big take about the future and then we'll wrap up here. I know that you have plans for next year. One one plan, though, that I actually want to unpack and, and mention is by 2025, I read that you have a goal of creating six intentional campus-based, virtually engaged communities of diverse intergenerational individuals seeking inclusion and belonging. That's obviously an awesome goal, but can you tell me more about what that might look like and, and just anything else on the horizon for W. Lawson that you'd want to share right now? Yeah. So that's that's the down payment on our moonshot. Our moonshot is 10,000 new or revitalized uh, housing units uh, and or memberships, meaning that if someone stays home, that is housing. It's just their, their housing by, by 2035. So that first down payment between now and 2025 of having six intentional communities is our best intent of showing that we can do this to scale. Now, you need to, we have to marry that with the fact that we have a great project that's, that's in pre-development in Catonsville, Maryland. But as our conversations with funders uh, are beginning right now, it's really about we want to show that we have a model that can be brought to scale in short order in most markets. Because we're not talking about just a targeted market of a certain slice of an individual. We're talking about as many slices of individuals across older adult spectrum and keeping it intergenerational as we possibly can. And so that really is our way of being very serious about how do we put ourselves on the line to say to funders, this is the level of funding we're talking about. We're not talking about a $40 million project. We're not talking about a $300 million project. We're talking about billion dollar level of investments because that's what we're going to need to supplement the 202 housing, the middle market rental uh, and the life plan communities. We have to have these communities come out of the ground because not to mention we have a growing uh, older adult homeless problem as well. And so even if you start to peel back the onion and say, you know, how do we do this from from uh, a payer source? How do we my perspective is is that pay me now, pay me later because the the crisis is here. The crisis of housing supports and services is among us, and it's only going to get worse unless we can get ahead of it. And in my opinion, W. Lawson is putting its money where its mouth is, or should I say, looking for funders to put its money where our mouth is, because that's what we really are talking about, is that we hear over and over again, out there right now, there's money for ESG. If you really focus on environmental sustainability, if you are a Black-owned business, a woman-owned business, there is money for you out here. And this is us saying, show us. You know, I, I won't go full Jerry Maguire on you, but show, <laughs> show us, Tim, where it is. Because right now I have, I believe, to be the only Black-owned community development housing provider in the country. It's senior housing in W. Lawson. Our partner in Jane Rhoda at Sing, uh, Live Together is the only, not only, is a woman-owned architecture firm. We've got the Bayard Rustin Center that is uh, at the forefront of supporting LGBTQ youth. So for, from from our perspective, we look at this and say, I think this is what you're asking for. So like, let's put money on the barrel and let's go. And this is not a charity case because we can show through our performer that this does pencil out by saying to folks, 
let's have 100% sliding scale and have this community be amenities for all and the wider community and not just shut ourselves behind doors. And so the future for W. Lawson in 2023 and beyond really is, uh, I've heard folks say it's disrupting. I'm just going where the market says people want us to be, which is to meet them where they are. And our intent is to really make the case statement amongst the, uh, the investors out there that this is how we are able to come to scale. And this is how we do it in a way that shows the social impact that those dollars that everybody, everybody, I think, 10 said they set, you know, set aside. So now it's time. Now it's time. So if you're listening to this right now, funders, that, that is the, that is the take home message. We yes. want to talk to you because every inch of this country is really in need of housing supports and services. And we believe we have a model that brings true equity to the field in a way that, that hasn't been done before. Yes. Well, that is the call to action. If, if this at all appeals to you, folks in the senior living industry that are listening, you know the guy to talk to, Marvell Adams Jr. Well, Mar- Marvell, uh, this was great. We are out of time today, but I know I could talk with you for a lot longer. So thank you for coming on Transform. Um, this was awesome. I, I truly appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Tim. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to thank Adams and W. Lawson for a great discussion today. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode, which will be dropping soon. Again, I'm Tim Regan, editor of Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.